Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Hey folks, Jason Moore here, and we're back with round two of Andrew Flat. Before we jump in, just a quick note about our sponsor, hrvcourse.com. hrvcourse.com is the premier resource for online educational material on heart rate variability, health, and performance. Listeners of this show get 10% off with discount code ELITEPODCAST, all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Head on over to hrvcourse.com to learn more about the science and mechanisms behind HRV. I'm one of the instructors. We've got other instructors there as well. There's a ton of great info, hrvcourse.com. Now, round two with Andrew Flat. The first episode was jam-packed with tons of information regarding HRV and sport performance, and this episode has even more, believe it or not. Um, a quick list of a few things that we're about to cover. One is the pros and cons of a high HRV versus a low HRV on competition day. Um, sympathetic activation for performance, injury potential and HRV, hydration, plasma volume and HRV, the three-step process to effectively implementing HRV for sports and training, and also when not to use HRV. Um, Andrew is very um, cut and dry when it comes to this stuff. He doesn't make promises that he doesn't believe in, and he also makes sure to do his research. So there are times maybe when HRV doesn't make the most sense. Um, we dive into all of this and more. So since Andrew has so much great info to share, let's go ahead and dive right in. A question that I often get is whether or not it is good to have a high HRV on the morning of a competition day. And I think this is one of those situations where unless there's some major problem with the athlete system on the day of the competition, that their preparation and training will make the biggest difference in the outcome of the competition. Um, My experience, though, is that strength and power sports seem to actually benefit from a slight decrease in HRV on the morning of a competition, possibly correlating with sympathetic activation and that endurance athletes or athletes that rely heavily on intra-competition recovery may benefit from slightly increased HRV on the morning of the competition. Again, this is just observational, and it also doesn't seem to hold true for everyone. Um, But what are your thoughts? Okay. I'll start off by saying that I I don't like trying to predict performance based on your HRV the morning of competition. There's, there's so many factors that can affect your HRV that are hard to control for to really say conclusively, you know, a decreased HRV was associated with better performance or an increase or higher HRV was associated with decreased performance. I think first, let's try and talk about the mechanisms of, of high HRV and low HRV in terms of what is happening um, and why in the first place, higher HRV might be associated with with improved performance in some capacity. And I think originally this all had to do with endurance training, okay? Not uh, events that that require complex movement, um, explosiveness, high changes of direction, um, you know, very high skilled type movements, but rather like running or cycling. And And the reason for that is you know, and, and there's probably uh, multiple reasons, but when, you, when you're considering changes in HRV that might have to do with fatigue um, and fluid balance and, and plasma volume shifts, um, you're, you're probably in a condition to perform endurance training uh, better when HRV is at or above baseline. Simply, if we're talking about uh, fluid balance, um, greater... Uh, or increases in plasma volume at when they're at baseline or they they increase above baseline, uh, it's going to cause a transient increase in blood pressure just because there's more volume in the blood. Okay, that activates the baroreceptor reflex, which basically is sensing changes in pressure, 
within, uh, for example, the arch of the aorta and, and so forth. We have baroreceptors in different areas, but um, they detect this, this change in blood pressure. It sends that information to the brain. The brain processes it and says, blood pressure is a little bit too high. Uh, we got to reduce blood pressure. So it sends efferent information to the, basically through the vagus nerve to the heart to reduce heart rate and, and thus increase variability. And the reason why you're probably in a condition to, to perform better is because when your plasma volume or your, your overall blood volume is higher, you're gonna increase um, your venous return and that's you're gonna have a greater stroke volume. Uh, your cardiac output's gonna be, you're gonna be more efficient basically. You're, you're, you're pumping more blood per beat. Uh, you're just in a physiologically in a better uh, state to perform endurance training. Um, that has nothing to do with uh, a sprint necessarily. That's a very short in duration or very complex movement patterns that are neuromuscular. We're looking at cardiovascular autonomic control. We're not looking at neuromuscular potential with HRV. That's it's not what it's measuring. Um, now, why would we have a decrease in HRV? Well, I would tell you the majority of the time, if you see a decrease in HRV on the day of competition, it's, it's probably due to pre-competitive anxiety, which is gonna mm -hmm. result in elevated plasma catecholamines, but also probably they slept poorly. Um, there's pretty good research to show that athletes on whether they're in a hotel or, you know, they're going to sleep worse when they're not in their own bed and they're going to sleep worse the night before a competition. Um, that's obviously going to vary a little bit on an individual basis in terms of how they perceive everything. But there was a recent study in uh, European Journal of Applied Physiology by some, an Italian group that was looking at performance in sprint swimmers and how it related to heart rate variability. And so the morning of, uh, of competition, they acquired heart rate variability and they were looking at uh, PNN50, which is a, a marker of parasympathetic activity, another time domain index. And what they found was that uh, the lower the HRV, the faster they sprinted. Was it due to pre-competitive anxiety? Was it um, uh, because they were stressed, because they slept poorly? Um, you can you can control for those things a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you do questionnaires, you can quantify sleep. If you, if you have the right tools, you can uh, there's there's been validated questionnaires to to determine anxiety, um, but in my experience, it it can create more problems than it can solve because you can't do anything about it. It's the day of competition. What are you going to do? Right. You know what I mean. And there's you got to consider the psychological impact that it might have on the athlete. That especially and uh, this is a criticism of mine against all apps, not not one in particular. But when, when you're giving a color, like a green or a red or a yellow, to an HRV score, and an athlete does it, it depending on the personality of the athlete, it's gonna, they're going to ask questions. They're gonna, it, 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 it can bother some athletes, too, to the point that we actually, I think there was a, a, at least one athlete that we were involved with that the color system, they, they just couldn't stand seeing it every day because they, it was freaking them out. Like, you know, this is telling me I'm not recovered or, or, or why is this bad, this, that, and the other. And, and what we've, we've gone to the point that we actually don't even measure HRV um, on days of competition. Um, and we don't even have them do it. Uh, I mean, there's benefits to doing it in terms of seeing how they respond to travel and, and this and that. But it's certainly not worth the, any kind of psychological added stress to the athlete because they're worried about seeing a, a number and a color indication. So, um, so we've kind of just done away with that. Um, again, depending on the athlete, but then we have some guys that, that are just so even keel and, you know, they, they you know, it doesn't bother them. They can handle it. So again, this, this always, it has to be done on an individual basis, but, uh, yeah, trying to predict performance on the day of an event based on your HRV, I think is a task, uh, a futile task. You're just, there's, there's a lot of variables and, and, and I'm not sure what kind of intervention you could make at that point. To, to change anything, you know what I mean? I guess there's, you know, calming techniques that we could use and so forth or uh, techniques that we can get to excite them, but I don't know. This corroborates reports of users getting a PR on a red day and getting confused about it. I then usually explain that the green, yellow, red recommendations are actually geared towards long-term improvement and not necessarily how well you will perform today. Longer term trends are generally more useful for that. 
Um, we actually added a setting in the app for the same reasons you were talking about where users or a coach can hide the daily readiness score uh, from their re reading. We call it the non-self-fulfilling prophecy setting. And uh, in the team platform, the coach or trainer can actually still see the reading for the day or the score for the day, but the athlete can't see it on the day of the reading. And part of the reason is because the athlete's reaction to the score is an unknown. Um, psychology is kind of interesting. Some athletes see a low score and think of it as a challenge to overcome. Others are depressed when they get a, quote, unfavorable score. So by hiding the readiness score on that day, a team can still gather data, but they can also avoid those mental unknowns. Um, and as you mentioned previously, if a, a sport requires a high degree of teamwork, skill, neuromuscular efficiency, or other dynamic factors, then it kind of becomes harder and harder to predict outcomes based solely off any one metric. Um, there is a component uh, to parasympathetic and sympathetic activation, though, when it comes to performance. And <clears throat> as mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, there is a benefit to having healthy sympathetic activation for performance, especially with strength and power sports. Um, and when I mentioned PRs, we've specifically seen people in the powerlifting community hit PRs on days when their HRV is slightly depressed. Um, there could be many factors, of course, to that, but anecdotally, I've seen it more in that community than others, probably due to the strong sympathetic nervous system requirements of the sport. I, I would lean towards that hypothesis that, that greater sympathetic activity is, is going to contribute to, uh, at least for those type of events, power and, and strength, that that it's probably an increase in sympathetic activity that's contributing. Um, that'd be my guess. Okay, so the last type of combination we have to discuss for weekly mean HRV and weekly HRV CV is when both are low or dropping. Could you talk a little bit about what that might indicate? Yeah, okay. Um, again, in my experience with the, the type of athletes that I work with, which again are mostly team sport or, or more recently, uh, sprint swim or sprint swimmers um, that is usually almost always indicative of accumulating fatigue um, and and the more severe fatigue i would add because that's indicating that hrv is going down and it's not returning back up to baseline we see this um, in athletes that are for example uh, a two sport athlete someone that was competing in two sports at the same time their hrv was was low and it was not bouncing back up to baseline and, and that was a problem. Uh, and so we did accommodate that by uh, adjusting, you know, his involvement in, in both sports a little bit. Um, so I would, I would say that when we're first gonna see an increase in the CV with maybe no change in the mean, that, that's indicating probably stimulation. Uh, then as the mean starts to go down and the CV remains elevated that severe i would say uh fatigue is accumulating a little bit because uh the scores are starting to drop a little bit lower there they might not be climbing quite up as high back to baseline but they're still they're still going up and down and then at the point when the cv stops bouncing back up towards baseline but kind of remains suppressed um that would indicate a, a high level of fatigue for sure so uh, I, and and i gotta add that I kind of just assume that this goes without saying, but I would never recommend that anyone use HRV by itself um, to, to determine anything without some kind of insight as to how performance is evolving, um, just their psychological status in terms of a simple wellness questionnaire. Um, I mean, I don't expect anyone to be drawing blood or taking salivary hormone mark, like that's just not necessarily uh, feasible in the field. Um, but simply taken with a performance metric, a fitness metric, uh, wellness questionnaires, you, you can, in an HRV trend, you can, you can really look into how they're adapting and responding to training and, and using how the evolution of these markers to, to guide training, not necessarily, um, 
use HRV on a, on a single day-to-day basis. HRV is this, it's that, therefore I'm going to train like this or like that. I mean, you can do it like that. Um, but, but in order to do that, you need to ha- be able to have the freedom to adjust your training accordingly. Um, that's not necessarily going to work well in a team environment. Um, rather, in a team environment, as, as you're monitoring the trends, you know, you could start to see. If, if we see a decrease in the HRV across a week, um, usually what we see is after one day of rest, like on a weekend or something, uh, it's going to come back up to baseline, Right. And then we kind of start again. So accumulating a little bit of fatigue over the week isn't a problem. We're not going to change anything unless, you know, we really start to see it in some performance um, or they're reporting just really high perceived training loads. Um, but again, if, if, if it's a short period of time, I'm not that overly concerned about it because they're going to have a day off in a few days. They'll recover then. They adapt. So you can use HR, HRV in a lot of different ways. You could look at the numbers in a lot of different ways. Um but I, I kind of like to use it collectively with these other markers, see how they're evolving over time, and then making adjustments uh, if necessary based on on more than one marker of uh, whether it's performance, fatigue, fitness, and all that kind of stuff. So It's important to reiterate what you just said. Um, goals have their own measure or measurable or observational progress. Like, are you increasing performance? Are you getting faster, stronger, or more fit, or whatever your goals are? HRV can be a tool and a useful metric in helping you achieve your goals, but changing HRV itself is usually not the end goal. So you need to be checking performance before and after a block of training to see if you're actually making progress. Also, the daily indicators or daily tailoring might be useful for beginners or those that are picking up a new sport because individual training sessions have a bigger systemic impact on the trainee. So the more experienced you become with a given training modality, the less any single session is going to affect you. Similarly, as you previously mentioned, um, the more experienced you become with a type of training, the lower your weekly HRV CV will be uh, generally uh, during that training block. So, uh, which because of course CV is a measure of the day-to-day fluctuation. And uh, once you're more experienced, the daily readings are more useful for basically watching for injury potential. For example, if your HRV spikes up really high on a given day, Uh, That might uh, indicate an increased parasympathetic activity and your wellness questionnaire may identify that your energy levels are abnormally low on that day. So that day might not be the best day to do very ballistic, excuse me, ballistic or high risk movement patterns if it's not absolutely necessary. And, And that's just kind of what I've seen Um, from talking to people and from my own personal data, actually, uh, I've sustained some minor injuries that occurred on days when I was in the red, so to speak, um, on a, on a given day. And I've also had lots of reports from users on that. Now that, uh, doesn't necessarily mean it can apply to everybody. Um, but what are your thoughts on injury potential in relation to changes in HRV? And that's an interesting topic and one that is entirely speculative in terms of, you know, it's anecdotal. So based on whatever you've seen, you right. might, you may have observed a relationship where changes in HRV have related to an increased occurrence of injury or something. Right. Um, here's my take on HRV and injury. Um, first and foremost, the higher level you are, the more meaningful, big changes in HRV are. And that comes back to, again, the, your higher level, more fit athletes have a small CV. So when they show a big change, it's usually pretty meaningful. Whereas your lower level athletes, less fit athletes, they're going to see big changes on a day-to-day basis, despite, you know, not much change in anything else. They're just, they're, it, they're just a physiologically different in some regards. So the way I, if, I don't want to say that if you're at an increased risk of injury just because of HRE, what I would say is this, you're at an increased risk of injury when you're fatigued, 
or when training loads have been increased progressively. You know, there's obviously a big association between an increase in training load and injury occurrence. If we just look at transitioning to any kind of preseason training camp where you're training two, sometimes three times a day, your exposure to training, and depending on the sport, it could be body contacts, it could be abrupt changes of direction, you're you're just exposed to more chance of injury. And where HRV comes into that is when you accumulate, that we see a pretty good relationship that when, when training loads are increased, HRV tends to go down, the CV tends to go up a little bit. Obviously, if it's more severe, the, the HRV mean goes down and the CV stays down. But so in that situation, they're getting, they're injured because training loads are high, there's a higher exposure um, and it just be, you know, there's an innate increased risk because they're doing more physical activity, more changing of direction. So, so they're just naturally at an increased risk of injury. And it may be heightened because they're experiencing fatigue, accumulated fatigue, which is reflected in HRV. Whether we can say with any kind of confidence that an acute change may be associated with injury just hasn't been shown in any kind of research yet. Um, doesn't mean it there, it's not there. Um, there was a recent uh, uh, paper in Medical Hypotheses by a, a doctoral student out of New Zealand, Gisselman. But uh, her, I think her dissertation is focused on looking at the association of HRV and, and injury occurrence and whether it's rugby players or, or soccer or whatnot. But uh, yeah, that, at this point in time, uh, the way I would associate HRV and injury potential is HRV is going to respond to increases in training load and, and you're more likely to get hurt when training loads increase due to exposure. Um, and that's, that's just because I'm, I'm being a little bit skeptical. Um, and I, and I just haven't seen, um, enough injuries where I could say, yep, HRV was down this day. That's when they got hurt. You know, I, I haven't seen that enough yet. Um, but that doesn't mean other people haven't. That's just that's just my personal take on it. So. That's a great point. It's important to not make blanket statements based on personal experience or undocumented anecdotal evidence. Um, anecdotal, anecdotal evidence is meaningful, of course, but having statistically significant and well-documented observational research will definitely add value to that discussion. Um, injury potential is such an important topic for athletes and teams, of course, since it's, uh, injuries can cost a lot for both the athlete and the team. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of her dissertation research. Actually, I'd, I'd like to add, sorry to cut you off. One of the, one of my big motivators to really pursue, uh, you know, increasing my understanding and, and even graduate studies and, uh, learning more about heart rate variability was uh, a paper uh, by a veterinarian who's, who's a friend of mine, Dr. Christine Ross, who looked at HRV in racehorses. And th this, was, uh, this was published in an in, in EQ's magazine or something. And, it's, and, I, and I was, remember looking for this article, I was asking people if they had access and they're like, what, what are you looking that for? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and it was because uh, I knew that there was this relationship that she found between HRV and injury. And, and so I was like, well, that's obviously very interesting and, and could be meaningful to coaches and athletes, right? So um, the article, what she found basically was in, in a, a, a group of these high-level racehorses, um, those that were showing heart rate variability patterns that would be associated with fatigue, um, illness, or, or very high stress ended up being the horses that ended up experiencing some type of uh, injury or restriction that required them to be removed from training. Um, and, and that was, I think, based on the uh, LF to HF ratio. So they were looking at kind of, you know, what, what some consider a measure of sympathovagal balance, uh, which is uh, debatable in terms of what it actually means. But, but obviously a, a reduced parasympathetic activity was associated with, with, and, and which was observed in certain racehorses were the same horses that ended up having to get pulled out of training uh, because they ended up experiencing an injury or got ill or something. So that was actually one of my, my early motivators for really trying to look at this and, and relating it to injury and so forth. So, I, I mean, that just kind of confirms that, yeah, when you're fatigued or, or, or under a lot of physiological stress, your HRV is going to be lower uh, for the most part. And 
because you're fatigued, you may be, uh, your immune system may be compromised. Um, so you're more likely to get sick. Uh, you're fatigued, so you're, um, neuromuscularly, your performance may, maybe your reaction time may be a little bit slower. Um, so I wouldn't say, again, a, a, an acute decrease may or may not have increase or decrease injury potential on, a, on any level. But I mean, if, if the trend is going down, there's clear indications of high fatigue, then, then yeah, it's, it's hypothetically, you, you may be at an increased risk. So it comes back to the power of weekly and longer-term trends being more definitive in decision-making than the daily indicators, um, especially for high-fit and experienced athletes. It's great to hear that uh, Dr. Christine's work was an inspiration to you. She and I have actually had a few discussions, and I've also reviewed some of her work with the horses. Um, In fact, I hope she doesn't mind my mentioning, but she's taking our HRV course over on hrvcourse.com. And she's been very, very encouraging to us as well in our work. Um, So, yeah. So I want to come back around to something you mentioned briefly, and that's the relationship between hydration and heart rate variability. Uh, So let's dive a little deeper into that. What is the relationship between hydration and heart rate variability? Yeah, and that that has that kind of comes back to um, plasma volume um, and how that affects blood pressure. And uh, what people need to understand about the heart is that it's an effector organ. The brain uses the heart as a means to um, respond to a stressor. So that could be during exercise, we increase heart rate to uh, deliver more oxygen and and remove more waste products during exercise. So the heart is a means through which we can accomplish that. Um, Likewise, during the recovery from exercise, again, circulation, removing uh, byproducts, uh, the heart is used uh, to help with heat loss by, or I should say kind of just the entire cardiovascular system is used because we direct and divert blood to peripheral or to the surface of the skin to try and lose heat. Um, we We perspire, we sweat, uh, an effort to lose heat through evaporation on the skin. Um, so the heart is used either directly or indirectly to accomplish a lot of these tasks. Um, when when fluid vol- or when fluid levels are are out of normal, again we we can see a, a transient decrease in blood pressure because there's there's less volume in our circulation, and so blood pressure decreases. And we like to maintain. Uh, a relatively reasonable narrow range of what our resting blood pressure is. So uh, in response to a drop in blood pressure due to decreases in fluid volume, we're going to increase sympathetic activity, which is going to increase heart rate, uh, which increases blood pressure. We, we get more total peripheral resistance. We can also uh, adjust um, arterial diameter um, to affect blood pressure as well through uh, sympathetic so, and then when we're rehydrating and, and we're restoring or we're experiencing plasma volume expansion, you got to understand one of the one of the earliest adaptations to endurance training is an increase in plasma volume as a result of increased plasma proteins, which create an osmotic gradient that draws more fluid into circulation. And so that probably accounts for some of these early increases in HRV that we see after a couple of weeks of training. Um, in addition to a lower resting heart rate, because if, if, if we're having, if there's an increase in venous return to the heart and we're able to, uh, pump more blood per heartbeat, then we don't need to beat as frequently. It's more efficient, right? So we get a decrease in heart rate. Uh, we also get an increase in parasympathetic activity because of the plasma volume expansion, uh, where, where it would, it would decrease or it would increase blood pressure with more volume, but then we counteract that with the barrel reflex by stimulating parasympathetic activity of the heart. There's more chronic adaptations that have to do with morphological, intrinsic morphological changes, such as increasing uh, ventricle capacity. So we can get some eccentric cardiac hypertrophy as a result of volume overload because we're constantly, with exercise, we're, we're filling it up with blood and we're, we're expanding uh, the volume. Uh, we, there's concentric cardiac hypertrophy as a result also of uh, volume overload uh, where the myocardium 
gets thicker and stronger and with greater contractility. These are all beneficial adaptations to endurance training, not to be confused with um, kind of pathological cardiac hypertrophy that can be a result right. of, of chronic pressure overload, where we could see similar changes that actually doesn't improve uh, cardiovascular performance, but actually results in uh, a smaller ejection fraction and, and, and conditions that are, are, are not good, obviously. So there's a difference, obviously, between uh, cardiac adaptations as a result of volume overload from, from exercise versus pressure overload from hypertension. Um, so, and, and maybe ischemia and so forth. So, um, so yeah, fluid, uh, one of the fastest, easiest ways to stimulate parasympathetic reactivation after exercise is to have a nice big glass of cold water, um, because you're, the cold water is going to help with bringing body temperature back down. Uh, we're going to initiate fluid balance restoration, which is important. Uh, there's thermal receptors that detect the, the cold water. Um, there's changes in osmolality uh, that can affect parasympathetic activity. So, so simply rehydrating after exercise is probably one of the best things you could do to, to activate the recovery process. Um, so I kind of just went off on a tangent. I don't know, did that answer the, the original question? Definitely, that's even better than I'd hoped. Um, so how important would you say it is to drink cold water or rehydrate immediately after training? It, it, it's more important for, I would say, athletes that maybe are competing multiple times in a day. They have several mm -hmm. events. Um, otherwise, well, I mean, we're going to rehydrate. We're going to have dinner at some point or we're going to have our next meal. So it's not, not a huge issue. But yeah, definitely if you're competing or, or training multiple times in a day, then you definitely want to be very mindful of your hydration status. And um, I mean, without being too technical, I, I mean, just looking at pre and post changes in body mass. Um, can give you a good indication of how much fluid you lost, but may obviously make sure you're controlling for uh, how you're weighing yourself in terms of if you're wearing clothing uh, and your clothing gets wet, then you weigh yourself after, well, wet clothes are gonna weigh more. And and so it may obscure that your changes in body mass from a training session. So generally you wanna weigh yourself either nude or in a pair of spandex or, your, or whatever, just so you're controlling for that, but. Great, so I was gonna ask more about plasma volume, but I think we covered it unless you have anything to add about that specifically. My, my insight to add to whatever we already discussed is ask Daniel Plews because he's, uh, again, working with endurance athletes, the plasma volume is obviously going to be much more related to performance for endurance than it is. Obviously, it, it impacts team sports players like soccer players that, that there's a high aerobic demand, um, but, but he'll, he'll be able to give you some probably some better insight on that. Great. So I'll have him on the show and that'll take care of that. So uh, there's something that you have recommended to me in the past and something that we've discussed before, and that's kind of your three-step process for implementing heart rate variability. And you recommend that teams or coaches or, or folks who are going to implement heart rate variability go through a period of observation, then a period of experimentation, and then a period of implementation. It's kind of observe, experiment, implement. And uh, I've definitely used that, uh, that <laughs> three-step process before. I've told many coaches, I've shared that with other people, but I, I always kind of credit it back to you. So uh, why is that your recommendation, and what is that all that about? Yeah, um, observation is is you have to observe how either if if you're using this on yourself you want to observe how you are responding in terms of your heart rate variability to training changes in training changes in, in different types of training volumes loads aerobic and you, you kind of want to see how you respond to that how travel stress affects you how life events you just want to to start to observe some kind of trend where you're like oh i'm noticing that that I'm handling this well, I'm not handling this well. It just gives some kind of validation for you to to know how you would typically respond to something, so that in the future you can make a a, a more educated interpretation uh, because you've seen it before and this has happened before, and perhaps what you're seeing is something that that was a major stressor before, or you responded to a given type of training. With, with a reduction in HRV and your CV increase, you were all over the place with your, your numbers. But then 
uh, over time that changes, that's reflecting improved adaptation usually, right? So um, the observation period is, I think, really important for, for yourself to understand how you respond, but also in showing coaches, listen, you know, we're not, we're never trying to tell a coach how to do his job. They're the coach because most of, more often than not, they're very good at what they do. Uh, they've, they've had a success. They, they know exactly. how to, right? So, but what we could say is, listen, we may be able to help a little bit. Like, for example, there's a new study, I think in uh, the British Journal of Sports Medicine that uh, Dr. Tim Gabbett is on. And essentially what they found was, you know, the more training sessions that you participate in during the preseason period was associated with, with less injury chance uh, for those athletes. So, um, for example, if we're monitoring HRV, there, we may be able to use it to help guide, you know, subtle variations in training load to keep our athletes able to participate, uh, which, again, if they're participating in more training sessions, they're, they're going to increase fitness more. They're going to increase capacity. Uh, because here's what happens at the beginning of training camp. Some athletes are more in shape than others and some respond to the first couple days. They handle it really well and some don't. And, uh, the smartest, the best thing you could do as an athlete is just report to camp in peak physical condition. Definitely don't try and rely on training camp to get you in shape. And, uh, and that comes down to strength and conditioning over the summer, usually in the collegiate setting. If your athletes are in town, you're able to train them, getting their fitness up, their, their work capacity up as high as possible is generally going to keep them healthy throughout camp. Um, so again, we're certainly not trying to, to, to tell a coach what to do, but we can say, listen, if we're monitoring these things, um, we may be able to give some insight on, on, you know, our, our starting players that we definitely don't want to, uh, to missing any games for whatever reason, we might be able to give you some insight when they may need to pack things off a little bit. Uh, and, and how I've done this in the past is, is tell them, let, we're going to monitor it and, and let's see what happens in terms of who responds well, who doesn't. I'll show them the trends. I'll show them some numbers, some correlations or, or, or what they love to see is just comparing a couple different athletes. So if you have a couple different athletes of the same position or that are similar in terms of build fitness or whatever and saying, listen, you know how this person has been performing versus this person and look at the difference in the trends here. Um, and then that mm -hmm. usually, not that I'm trying to sell it, but I'm just trying to show them that, that it could be useful, right? So that's, that's your observation period is, is just observing trends that, that are meaningful. And then experimentation is, all right, we, we understand what these changes in the trend mean when, they, when we can uh, include factors like training load and, and wellness questionnaires. Now we want to make an intervention, see how, how they how change because of it. And, uh, and then again, you're assessing how, was it successful? Did it work? Um, and, and at that point you get down to your implementation. So you're confident, um, that responding to a trend by either reducing training loads. And again, we always talk about reducing training loads, but I've seen a lot of instances where athletes were just handling training really well and we should probably increase training loads. So, mm -hmm. um, so it, it's giving you more insight. It's an objective physiological marker. It's not magical. If you understand, um, Kind of what it's telling you, you can, you can definitely use it to your advantage. But if you have experienced tracking training volume, uh, maybe a wellness questionnaire, and you want to add more insight with an objective physiological marker, I think it's great. Um, but start with an observation period. Start with with a handful of athletes. Don't overwhelm yourself because the last thing you want to do is add something that's going to make things worse and 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 so forth. So um, I wouldn't recommend HRV to be your first monitoring. Uh, parameter. Um, and I would, I would definitely not start using it and making interventions based on numbers that you're not, you've not validated on yourself and your athletes in terms of, yep, they're showing these kind of trends and these situations, therefore we should make these changes. Um, and, and here's a little bit of a rant and I'm not picking on any, anyone in particular, but if you, if your goal is to be evidence-based and you're trying to make training or adjust training based on science and you're relying on an algorithm that you don't know what it's, what it's factoring in, how it's doing it, but you're doing this marker. You say, okay, I measured HRV. It's giving me this light. It's telling me I'm good. It's telling me I'm not good. I'm going to depend on that because it's science-based. Therefore I'm making training in your situation. It's not science-based because you have no idea 
if you don't understand the algorithm or if you don't understand where it's coming from, you're not being evidence-based. You're, you're relying on a magic eight ball. Um, so I think understanding the, what the numbers actually mean and what they're telling you and how they evolve, because again, high and low HRV can be good or bad. It, it depends on the situation, right? So I don't even remember what the original question was, but, uh, <laughs> we're talking observe, experiment, implement. Exactly. You have to, you, 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 and, and again, I almost think if you're a coach and you want to implement this with athletes, you should probably do it on yourself for a couple of weeks or a month or two. And, and, uh, the, the more experience you have seeing numbers and changes, the better you're going to be at implementing it. So again, start on yourself, start with a small group of athletes, then to, for it to be really effective across, you know, more players, or if you're just looking at your starters, you know, you want to have that experience. Uh, of seeing trend changes, making interventions, and seeing that it worked or it didn't work, you know, before you st- that it really becomes part of the part of the program. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that that makes complete sense. Um, when it comes to training, the first thing that uh, you should measure are performance markers because in that discussion, that's typically the end goal: increases in performance. Um, and then folks start tracking things like body weight because all you need is a scale or they implement wellness questionnaires with questions like, um, you know, what was your RPE or relative perceived exertion after training or your perceived energy levels or your muscle soreness. Um, so would you mind sharing a few questions that you like to include in your wellness questionnaires? For a wellness questionnaire to be useful, you need to get them done relatively frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, would you agree with that? And in order to get them done frequently, they can't be long. They can't, uh, in terms of the athlete, you know, 20 to 30 seconds, they're responding, you know, that that's pretty much what we want to limit to. So, um, the, my experience, there's a lot of, there's extensive questionnaires that you could use for research purposes that have been validated. No one in the, in the real world with athletes is necessarily going to apply those though on a, on a regular basis in terms of daily or, or three times a week or whatever. Um, I love the sliding scale on a smartphone app where they can just go, uh, you know, based on your perceived muscle soreness, you know, it's higher, it's lower. They can see the the scale where, you know, it, it changes color or whatever as they go one way or the other way. It, it, it simplifies it for the athlete's perspective. And in terms of, like, running correlations with changes in heart rate variability and changes in wellness parameters, um, perceived stress uh, and perceived sleep quality have been very helpful. Um Perceived fatigue and soreness tend to correlate well with each other. So if you're asking them about their perceived fatigue and they're reporting really high fatigue, most of the time they're also reporting really high soreness. So you can almost condense. I mean, they're two different things technically, but in the mind of the athlete, they, they might report that they're fatigued because they're sore. Um, still, I think they're both useful. And, and because if you have it set up where they could, they could just answer it, and whether it's a sliding scale or they type in a number, however you want to do it, um, as long as they could do it quickly, conveniently, uh, with not much sweat off the athlete's back, um, you know, those, those typical ones I just mentioned, I think are all useful. Definitely, uh, we could get into more specifics about perceived stress. We can ask them to rate academic stress. We can ask them to rate, at the end of the day, that you're just adding clutter in their mind, you know, you know perceived stress, how you feeling. And they'll, they'll sit, they'll think, they'll be like, yeah, pretty good. You know, it's been, you know, or... Cause you can see when they're doing it, I, like I'll be visually observing and, and they said, they think for a second, they, and then they make their, uh, their response. But, um, we also need to be mindful about, uh, longevity and compliance. And, um, can we carry this out throughout an entire season? Um, and, and usually we can, uh, but with HRV and wellness, I don't measure it at times where we don't have to as much as I'd love to, just because I'm curious and I want to see the data. But just to get it off the athlete's mind so they don't have to worry about it. If it's not an important time of the year or uh, there's a situation where we just don't really need it, we're not going to measure it just just to get them out of the routine of, of having to do things. You know, there's a ton of things that they already have to do. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're refer- you are referring to large chunks of time like weeks, months, or off-season in which um, the data won't be used in any way by your team, Um, but not necessarily like skipping days of measurements between workouts just because it's a day off. 
Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of psychology involved when it comes to effectively coaching and training athletes. And if I could add before we move on to the next one, if, if you're involved with the team, you're going to be able to observe body language, performance, how they respond to just, just through talking or, or seeing them interacting with their friends. You could tell simply by how much chatter there is in the locker room before practice, if they're if they're loud, they're talking, they're joking around and dancing around, which, which I see a lot. Um, you know, they're probably feeling pretty good. Their stress levels probably aren't too bad, you know, or at least they're, they're handling well, but then there's days, you know, a couple days into camp and it's quiet. People are more withdrawn and reserved. Um, you know, you could pretty much almost guess what they're going to rate. Um, so it's, I, I would never recommend if, if you're, in charge of monitoring whether you're a physiologist or a sports scientist or just a strength coach, which is probably the majority of situations of your strength coach doing this. Um, you're in a, a good situation because you're involved with the athletes and you're interacting with them on a regular basis. If you're sitting behind a computer screen trying to make sense and decisions just based on the numbers, there's a disconnect where you, where you're just, you're missing that human element of interaction or at least observation. Um, and, and again, the, being being there and, and and interacting is is just as important as all these numbers and that's I mean that's that was the most original way of monitoring your athletes was simply your intuition based on how they're responding how they look in the warm up and uh, the, the, those certainly just because we're not talking about them doesn't mean that that I don't hold those in very high regard in terms of value so I just wanted to add that in. That's so important that you say that, especially coming from you, since people listening may be interested in what you have to say because of your expertise with the numbers. So I definitely appreciate you saying that um, because it's so important to have an understanding of the real life situations that are involved in training and competing. And that comes back to what you said earlier, which is that we aren't trying to tell a coach what to do or replace the need for good coaching. Not at all. Uh, We're just adding a tool to the arsenal of a good coach. Uh, A good example just came to mind of when I recommended to a team to use this observe, experiment, implement process when uh, implementing HRV with their athletes. And uh, the coach of one of the top national teams in the sport of orienteering approached us to learn how to implement HRV with his team of orienteers. And orienteering, for people that don't know, (laughs) I didn't know much about it when the coach reached out to me, Um, but orienteering is basically racing across uneven terrain with the requirement of navigating with a map and compass to various checkpoints. Um, So it's an interesting sport, and these athletes are usually in extremely good shape. So the coach was essentially asking, how can I tailor training with my athletes based on HRV? And my initial response was, well, I've heard of orienteering, but I don't really know anything about it. So I can't tell you anything specifically about tailoring the training, but I can tell you what patterns to look for in the data. So uh, if you do an observation period, you can look for some of these patterns. So he was very open-minded and selected a group of his top athletes that were dedicated and willing to learn more about themselves. And in preparation, actually, for the Orienteering World Cup, they rolled HRV out and started monitoring their athletes and observing um, what the HRV data did in relation to their training. And um, early on, they kind of found that the daily indicators were not the most useful for their uh, application of HRV, which wasn't a surprise. Uh, But they did find that the weekly coefficient of variation correlates really very strongly with their wellness questionnaires. Um, And it it correlated with the training really well as well. So um, after a few months, they began actually tailoring their training based on the observations they made in those first few months um, and CV was HRV CV was one of the big uh, parts of that. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see uh, what they what they kind of uh, conclude from all of this because they'll have about a year's worth of HRV data 
and they're in elite endurance athletes uh, leading up to a World Cup competition. So uh, it'll be a really neat data set. I, that, that's great to hear that, that they're finding the CV useful because it just uh, it's kind of uh, reaffirming that what I'm seeing isn't something I'm completely making up <laughs> and, and that other people are, are making similar observations. Uh, so, so that's, that's great to hear. I'm glad uh, that they, they've observed this and now that they, they're confident that they could use it to help drive, you know, somewhat be- uh, better or more informed decision-making. That's great. Definitely. Um, I'd also add that anecdotally, I've received feedback from many coaches in various sports that HRV CV has definitely been a very valuable metric for them in their decision making. Uh, and and I think um, I kind of um, when I talked about criticizing a criticism of a lot of apps using a color code, uh, I, I kind of want to just talk about that a little bit more. Um, when you're trying to develop an app and make an app that's useful, it's it's very hard to do. Um, to accommodate everyone for every situation. So doing a color coding system actually makes the most sense because um, it, it's, it's making interpretation a little bit more easy. But I think what the coach needs to take from a color indication is not that green means good always. I mean, in most cases, it's, it's usually a good thing. Red, in most cases, is probably usually a bad thing. Not bad, it's, it's indicating something, right? Um, what you want to interpret colors as is changes. So if it's green, it's, you're probably within normal. If it's amber or red or, or however the app chooses to use it, it's telling you that it's outside of normal. It, so, so don't take it as, as a certain color means good or bad. Interpret it as based on what the algorithm, uh, what the algorithm is using is, you know, if, if it's not green, that means that the, the numbers have changed substantially enough to change the color, okay? Whether that's good or bad, you have to interpret that based on who the athlete is, how they typically respond, what training loads, the acute training loads have been, how they've been responding over time. Uh, Interpretation has to be made based on the change, not on the color. So I think if we change the way we see the color um, a little bit, uh, we can actually get more use out of it. The problem is we're naturally uh, trained to think of green as good to go red as stop, right? That's, and that's why it's used. But again, when we, if we're having our athletes do this in the field every day and they're seeing red and green, that's when it starts playing with their mind. So, um, so the color code can be very good. It could, it could also be a little bit of a problem depending on the situation. So when I made that criticism, I, I should say that I, it's with completely understanding that it's, it's difficult because it, it, what we're trying to do with an app is simplify it for people, right? Right. And and in to to make HRV useful and applicable for coaches, you know, they don't necessarily need to or have to be experts in in physiology. But I'll be honest, if if you don't know why these numbers are changing or what you can possibly attribute it to, then I don't know how much use you're going to get out of it. So so you do need to educate yourself um, and and see beyond the color uh, and and try and and just understand that it means there's a difference, there's a change. Why is it the, the change? How is it, um, what is it related to? Is it, is it fatigue related? Is it stress related? Is it training load related? And therefore make your decision. So um, yeah, it's, we're still in the early stages of all this, right? I mean, I, I, smartphone apps haven't been available for, um, it hasn't even been a decade really, so. Right. It comes back to that observe, experiment, implement. And I generally tell higher level athletes or athletes that have a coach to pay more attention to the weekly trends. But if you're interested in still using the daily uh, indicators, you can use the weekly and longer term trends to help validate whether your daily tweaks are having a positive or negative impact. For example, um, if a daily indicator uh, flags a yellow day, um, you might actually choose to push through a yellow day and just train hard anyways. And that's, of course, if you're not worried about health or something like that. Um, So you can just do this as an experiment and see if the long-term recovery is actually impacted because you might actually just um, automatically eat more, sleep more, 
um, and just recover more, compensate automatically, uh, and recover just fine. Um, so ask yourself, uh, is HRV impacted over the longer term? Are performance markers increasing or decreasing? Also, uh, kind of an important thing that we've kind of touched on is that uh, coaches and trainers and teams don't have to be the only ones that use this template of observe, experiment, implement. Um, it's just as applicable to individuals as well. Yeah, and um, here, prepare yourself for another little bit of a rant. Sure. <laughs> We're in a stage right now where HRV, there's a, a lot of hype behind HRV right now. And that has to do with the overall hype in terms of athlete monitoring, which is which is a buzzword. In, and I'm speaking within the context of strength and conditioning and performance and sports, right? Um, and, and, and if you look at all the trends in, in, in training and sports science or fitness industry, there, there's usually going to be a hyper reaction at first. Mm-hmm. Um, where So right now, I think we're, we're accumulating uh, and we're approaching a hyper reaction phase where everyone's thinking we ought to all be measuring HRV. Um, and then the issue, and, and this is coming from someone who's a big proponent of HRV. The problem is when, when black and white guidelines for HRV are given, people take them, they start using, and it's not making sense. Then all of a sudden HRV is crap. It's not useful. People don't know what they're talking about, right? It's, well, no, you're, you're misinterpreting the data because you were given bad information or not bad information. You just maybe weren't taking it in the right context. So and another reason why it's kind of... Uh, expanding or, or, or growing is, is there's a mystery to it in terms of, you know, what does it mean? It's if, if you were to do a Google uh, Scholar or a PubMed search on HRV and, it, and you see the trend over time of, of how many hits you're going to get, it increases every single year. There's more and more research being done. We're finding associations with, uh, the, you know, the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway and how increased HRV is de- typically associated with uh, lower inflammatory levels. Uh, we're looking at how it affects performance, training loads. So there's there's all this stuff going on. There's all this hype. And because not a lot of people are trained or have the physiological uh, background to really understand and interpret HRV, it's, there's a mystery to it. And that always makes something cool. <laughs> What's going to happen is when, when more research comes about and, and when we really start to see, okay, this is how we should interpret it, and we're able to explain it physiologically, the mystery is going to go away. The hype is going to come down, and what you're going to be left with is what HRV is what it really is. Is it's a useful, objective, physiological marker that can be used to help guide training if you use it and apply it appropriately. It's not a magic tool. No monitoring variable is magic, and and I wouldn't say one is even more important than another. I mean, maybe depending on your sport, um, but but you have to take them together with other markers. That always is going to add more meaning and better interpretation, and. Uh, and like I said, the, the pendulum is, is going to swing. I think it, we're still on the upward phase of the overreaction. Uh, it's going to come back down. But rather than kind of going to falling to the wayside as being useful, people are going to be like, okay, it is useful. We may be <laughs> overreacted a little bit in terms of trying to be too sensitive to these numbers. Now we understand what they mean. We understand the trend. And we use it uh, as a guide looking at trends to help help with, with training. Um, at least at this current point in time, that's kind of how I see where things are and where they're headed. What do you think? That definitely aligns with how most health and performance trends occur. Um, I mean, whether it's a biomarker or a specific exercise or a diet recommendation, um, basically when hype builds and people who don't truly understand a topic, they often will extrapolate it out and start making promises that they don't really have the experience to substantiate. And then it becomes this magic bullet, uh, or seemingly so, that can cure all issues. Um, But oftentimes when the pendulum starts swinging back the other way, the truly useful tools and techniques are recognized for what they are, which, like you said, are useful tools. And then the ones that weren't really what they seemed end up dying off uh, and pretty much time will tell as they say. Um, So in the meantime, basically we can do our best to educate people and just take the mystery out of it so that it doesn't get overblown. uh, And so that people aren't put off by the hype because they already understand it better. 
Um, and so that, that kind of mirrors my, my personal evolution with heart rate variability, which when I first started learning about it, I was super excited about it. I mean, obviously <laughs> enough to um, create my own heart rate variability platform. Um, and I'm still very, very excited about it. But early on, I realized that it was so much more powerful and so much more useful if you had other metrics to go along with it and that it wasn't a magic bullet by itself. It needed context to be used effectively. So that's kind of why we were one of the earliest platforms to include what we call metadata or wellness questionnaires so early directly into our app because um, all of those metrics uh, and subjective measures and objective measures kind of work together to add a lot of value and alone none of them are a magic bullet um, you know HRV the value of HRV greatly increases with context and and you know what I think I the, the phase I went through with HRV was uh, I you know I, I, I read that some some coaches uh, for example Landon Evans was using it with athletes uh, that he was writing about and I was like intrigued um, started using it on myself, got to grad school, started reading the research on it. And, and the research was really cool. The, some of the available studies, the problem was I wasn't at the time as schooled in statistics as a, as I probably should have been. So my, I definitely went through the stage of like, Oh my goodness, this is amazing because this was related to this. But it's like, if you look at statistics, and the relationship was 0.5 that <laughs> tells you, you know, only, only 25% of the variance was explained by, by that parameter or whatever. Right. So, or you see there was a significant change in HRV and it was significant this and that. And, and then you start to realize that, you know, these are based on means and, and the reality of the situation is some showed this response some showed this and, 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 and so forth. So, so understanding a little bit more about research methodology, how data is analyzed, it, it brings you back down to earth. And, and like, okay, yeah, this isn't as magical as maybe I thought it was at first. Um, but the more you use it, the more you, you see its value and, and, and the more you could use it to your advantage. Um, but uh, yeah, you're probably going to go through a few different phases with it in terms of you love it, you hate it, it's useful, it's not useful. Um, you you, you, you got to take it for what it is. And, uh, and, and again, these markers are all complementary. So exactly like you said, you have to include these other markers because it strengthens each one of them uh, in terms of, of what they can tell you and, and how you can make decisions with it, at least in my experience. So, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and share all this knowledge with me and our listeners. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say before we start wrapping up? Well, first, thanks uh, for having me. I, I always enjoy um, it's nice to have a discussion with someone uh, who's also pretty familiar with HRV and has experience so that it, it's more of a discussion and, and less of a kind of just a Q&A, um, which is, uh, makes things a little bit more fun from my perspective. Um, I, I want to add that uh, I learn something new literally probably every day looking at data and seeing trends. So uh, in, in three months from now, what I'm saying right now may or may not still hold true. So, so bear that in mind. Um, I'd also just like to uh, let everyone know about a conference that's coming up. Uh, my friend, Dr. Brian Odie, is putting on a conference, and uh, it's going to be hosted at California University of Pennsylvania. And uh, a lot of uh, friends and colleagues of mine are going to be presenting there. Uh, Dr. Mike Young will be there. Um, Dr. Tudor Bompa, who's kind of one of the, uh, you know, figureheads of periodization who wrote the big textbook um, back, in, uh, back in the day that's been revised a few times and updated. Um, Carl Valley from Inside Tracker, another friend of mine, is going to be speaking, uh, and then a few other coaches I've worked with over the years: Dr. Uh, Brian Shrum, who's a soccer coach at Duquesne, um, and so forth. So, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, uh, anywhere, I think May 13th and 14th, check it out. It's not expensive, um, and you're going to see some great speakers and learn a lot about speed and strength and conditioning. So. FYI, the conference Andrew mentioned has already passed at the time that this episode is going up. Um, feel free to check it out anyways online or next year. Also, if you've got questions for Andrew or would like to hire him to consult with you or your organization, we've been able to arrange a deal with Andrew for consulting. So 
just send an email to info at elitehrv.com with a few details about what you need and we'll make it happen. That's info at elitehrv.com. Also, since the discussion with Andrew went so well, um, we've pulled him in to write some content for the Elite HRV blog. And definitely check out the EliteHRV.com blog for Andrew's posts on, of course, HRV and performance. And we'll have some other topics there as well. Uh, We talked about the, in this episode, we talked about the hype surrounding HRV at the moment and how it is a powerful tool that can give you a competitive edge, but it's not a magic bullet. So if you want to understand it in greater depth and how to apply it, I definitely recommend heading over to hrvcourse.com and checking out the video courses and materials there. Um, I'm one of the instructors. Uh, We've got some other instructors as well, and there's a lot of great content, but make sure to use discount code ELITEPODCAST, all one word, to grab your 10% discount for being a listener of this show. Um, Next up, we've got a whole slew of doctors on the show, including Dr. Marco Altini, Dr. Dan Plews, who we mentioned in this episode, Dr. Paul Larson, which is the the prof in Plews and Prof, if you've ever heard of them, and Dr. Eldred Taylor, who is president of the American Functional Medicine Association. Um, Really awesome info from all of these guys. Um, We've got everything from data science to world champion endurance, functional medicine, like I mentioned. Um, And definitely subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app uh, to make sure you don't miss any of that great information that they will be sharing with us. Uh, Lastly, the best way to help out the show and to attract more experts is to leave a short review on iTunes. Even if you listen on a different app, one to two sentences on iTunes specifically helps tremendously. And I read them all. Uh, It attracts uh, more big names to the show to share their knowledge, and it really just helps. A big thanks from... Everyone on the team at Elite HRV for your time. Um, We're really honored to have these guests and to have you listening. And with that, we'll see you next time. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.